right, our second case this morning is Amanda, excuse me, uh, 2021-497, Amanda Brandt versus Roy Pompa et al. For the appellant, Mr. Peck. Thank you, Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The Ohio Constitution employs the word inviolate just three times twice with respect to private property, but then qualifies that by saying that the inviolate right of pri private property is subservient to the public welfare. It uses no qualifier when it comes to the right to trial by jury. In, in other words, under the expressio unius uh, approach to interpretation, the framers said that this was one that was categorical and is not weighed against other types of rights. The Ohio Constitution of 1802 is where we look for what the right to trial by jury means. And that historical test tells us, as the Supreme Court said in 1998 in the Feltner case, that jurors are the judges of damages. That means that when the jury makes a damage assessment, that is part of the right to trial by jury. Did the people who adopted the jury trial right in 1802 mean for that provision to be different than the one in the federal constitution? Uh, well, this court has held that uh, it's influential, um, and certainly we would think that uh, uh, since it's a historical test, the test would be the same, and the result ought to be the same. So do you think that the U.S. Supreme Court's precedent is wrong then, its understanding of the history? The Supreme Court precedent on Feltner is no, clearly the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm talking about the U.S. Supreme Court. In Feltner versus Columbia Pictures, a case that the court decided unanimously, uh, written by Justice Thomas and argued uh, successfully by then attorney John Roberts, uh, now Chief Justice Roberts, um, showed that the historical meaning of the right to trial by jury means that jurors are the judges of damages, and that when you fail to preserve that, you fail to preserve what the Seventh Amendment means. Now, I know that uh, you are probably thinking of some of the other decisions the federal courts might have made. And I can explain the taxonomy of that because what happened is first, the first case to say that uh, the juror's job is done when they reach a verdict and the law can be applied afterwards was the Virginia Supreme Court in the Etheridge case. And in that case, the court adopted that to uphold a damage cap that applied to medical malpractice that uh, uh, capped both economic and non-economic damages. When subsequently courts such as the Washington State Supreme Court and others that came to a different conclusion criticized it, in a subsequent decision the Virginia Supreme Court in Pulliam said, well, of course our right to jury trial is only stated as preferable, it's not inviolate, and so therefore it has a lesser meaning than it does in other states. Now, subsequently, in Boyd versus Balala, the Fourth Circuit, which sits in Virginia, um, applied the federal Seventh Amendment. And what it did was it said, well, we find the uh, analysis that was done by the Virginia Supreme Court in Etheridge valid. So we are going to apply that too. And we're made confident in this analysis by a case called Toll versus United States, which the Attorney General uh, cited in his brief. 
Toll was a Clean Water Act case. So it was a case that did not exist at common law and which the jury trial right did not apply under that historical test. And in that case, dealing with penalties, the court said that the jurors jobs are done and as a result, you can have the judge determine what the penalties are. But subsequently in Feltner, they said toll was an opposite when the right to trial by jury under the Seventh Amendment does apply because this is a right that's protected as to the common law and therefore that is why jurors get to decide damages and there is a right to, the, to both parties for jury assessed damages. Now, Counsel, how many cases would we have to overrule to affirm you? I, I believe way. you would have to overrule Arbino and Simpkins. Um, and that, what about Groach? Um, uh, you know, I, I, th I think that that's possible to distinguish. There about Oliver. Uh, and I think that's also possible to distinguish. About Kaminsky. I, I'm sorry. Um, um, I think that's probably one that might What about happen. Stetter? But, uh, but let me just say that um, all the cases that came before, uh, Sorrell, Morris, um, Sheward, um, uh, Pryor, these cases are still good law in the state, but as the Attorney General candidly admits, is inconsistent with Arbino. So, so the fact of the matter is we have a split in authority in the state that cannot be reconciled. We're suggesting that the better view is the one that was expressed in those earlier cases and that the, uh, that the decision in Arbino was based on some errors in looking at that. For instance... So we would have to overrule Groach, Oliver, Kaminsky, and Stetter. Uh, as, I, as I said, I think to the extent that uh, um, these are also statutory in nature, some of these, um, that they do not have to be overruled. Uh, the Attorney General makes mention of a case called Hemmings from the Ninth Circuit, which uh, he says there was a question asked, and it's an appropriate question to ask here about treble damages. And Urbino does talk about treble damages. The thing is, if you actually read Hemmings, it answers the question too. What it notes is that, of course, the issue in Hemmings, which was a sex discrimination case, a cause of action that did not exist at common law, um, as a result, it is for Congress, by creating the statute, uh, the cause of action to define the extent of the remedy. And so as a result, there was no problem in saying that uh, Congress enacted a cap for a cause of action that they created. At the same time, it noted that in the 13th century, double and treble damages existed. So as a result, those are incorporated into the right by tr of trial by jury because of the historical test. I would add one more thing. And that is that when you talk about trouble damages, when you talk about future damages being reduced to present value, when you talk about periodic payments, you're always honoring the decision of the jury. But with a cap, you're saying that the cap basically um, overrides that jury decision. And so that $250,000 verdict, a $500,000 verdict, a $1 million verdict, or in this case, a $20 million verdict, all mean the same thing. Well, that let, is let's rational talk about and arbitrary. That. Let's talk about those numbers. The way I'm calculating it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, there's $134 million in the original verdict, right? Uh, if you include the punitive damages, which of Wh which course are, serve a different which, purpose. Which are there, correct? Mm -hmm. And under the judgment, it's 114,250,000. Is that correct? That is correct. 
Was there a judgment debtor exam done? No. Is this guy judgment proof? We don't know. It's not part of the record. So no one knows, so we may not, this may be a moot point or on the right point. It's not a moot point. We always make judgments about um, cases without knowing whether it's collectible or not. In fact, if it was a moot point, why did they move to reduce the damages? Um, it would have been a moot point to do so. Absolutely. And so the fact of the matter is we never know about its collectability until a later point when there is a final judgment that's uh, uh, finally there was disposed a final, of. There was a final judgment. But, but we don't have a final disposition of this case. We do have a final judgment. We, we have a final judgment, which is why we're able to come to this court, but we don't have a final disposition of the case. And until there's a final disposition, no one makes the effort to find out if it's collectible well, it, or not. Was, was, there, was there a bond issue? Has there, has there been any, any effort to collect? No. You could, you could try to collect now, right? We could. And you, and you haven't, the $114 million that you could try to collect, you haven't tried to. We, we have not done any attempt to collect. We are seeking a final disposition of the, the compensatory damages in this case. Well, As we well, know, also well, why, why would you, I mean, if you can collect 114, why wouldn't you, million, why wouldn't you go ahead and get that? And then you could work with the other 20 later. It seems like pocket Because it's, it's important to, do, to establish as part of what is a final disposition, what the compensatory damages are. And, and it, well, it's necessary not, to do not, so. not important for the purposes of collecting. Maybe it's important legal principle, but it's not, there's nothing about collecting from this person. You know, we, we know nothing about what is collectible or not. We know nothing about whether he might come into some money through an inheritance or other means. And, and so therefore, the, the fact is the question of collectability is a theoretical one. It's only theoretical because you have not tried to collect. That's what oh, makes it theoretical. And I, I am not aware of any time anyone has ever tried to collect something while it's still on appeal. Can you talk about the differences? I'm over here to your, <laughs> sorry, right. Can, can you talk about your first proposition of law, 2315.18 uh, is applied to minor victims of sexual abuse and what we should be considering in regard to that? Right. If, if you're not prepared to strike this down on the basis of the jury trial right, at least it should be uh, struck down as applied to this kind of case. This is the case that uh, Simpkins imagined could be, uh, uh, could come up. That uh, indeed, this is a catastrophic injury with ramifications that are life altering for the rest of Amanda Brandt's life. And that is the kind of catastrophic damage that even an Arbino said, well, that's why this is, complies with Morris, because there's an exception for catastrophic injuries. Now, Morris, Are you saying the injury to Ms. Simpkins was not catastrophic? That was, according to this court, a single instance as opposed to 34 instances in which it changed her life while Ms. Simpkins was able to play basketball both in high school and go on to college and do so there and did not engage uh, in continued you, you, therapy. Amanda want Brent us to compare is, rape, rape victims? <laughs> well, if, if we're saying that um, what has to happen here is something more than occurred in Simpkins, this case provides something more than happened in Simpkins because in addition to the rape 
There was also filming of it and distribution of it, so that we also have crimes of child pornography. And, and so the fact of the matter is, this is something that will affect her for the rest of life. And Simpkins said that she was not going through therapy. She did not anticipate going through therapy. Amanda Brandt's going to have to do that for the rest of her life. And so the consequences here are so catastrophic that they are certainly more than a permanent scar on the hand or the loss of a finger or the types of things that the statute carves out as exceptions. And, and so we, we suggest that uh, this meets that thing. And when, when the legislature decided to create exceptions, not only for the Morris reason, but also for the reason that um, this was something that uh, because it was so egregious, uh, and, and the injuries that it visited upon the uh, plaintiff um, was so great that they thought that we had to carve out something for that. I would suggest that these kinds of injuries, which are non-economic in nature, at least meet the same level that the, the legislature carved out with respect to the others. Now, I see I'm, I'm down to uh, two minutes and 30 seconds, and I'd like to reserve some time for rebuttal. Thank you. Mr. Little. Thank you, Chief Justice. May it please this honorable court. In Simpkins, this court acknowledged that there could be a set of circumstances in which application of the statutory damages would prove unconstitutional. And in that court, in that particular case, the court found that the fact pattern presented at Simpkins did not arise to that level. In fact, there were two justices from this court that concluded that that case had been improvidently accepted for jurisdiction. We submit that the facts presented now before this court um, likewise fail to satisfy that constitutional test. And there are three overarching concerns that I believe that uh, make that clear. The Council, first, what, what, what's the test again? Why is this? Uh, I'm sorry. What, what test are we going to apply here? Uh, we're looking under the Simpkins test that acknowledged that there is a, there may be an appropriate case at some point in time, uh, in the co course of the, the state of Ohio, where the court might find that the application of the statutory caps may be unconstitutional. And Simpkins was not that case, and this is not that case either, Your Honor, for the following reasons. The first is that the plaintiff appears before this court today with a $114 million remedy. Now, they, they mince the words in terms of verdict, et cetera. There is a judgment in her favor. So are you saying that this might be the case if the judgment were significantly less? Well, um, that's one thing that this court's precedent is counseled against, Your Honor, which is trying to answer hypotheticals in a constitutional law context. So I suspect that when the court sees the case that's appropriate, it'll, it'll make the appropriate finding. But with all... Uh, with but all, might um, you still come and argue that that's not the appropriate case, too, based on the amount of the compensatory? Well, we don't know what the future cases may hold, Your Honor, but we know what the facts are in this case, and facts do matter. And the facts in this case are she, is, she has a $114 million remedy. You cannot say she was denied her day in court. You cannot suggest she was denied a meaningful remedy. In fact, the remedy that she has received is the one that was specifically prescribed by the Ohio General Assembly. The General <coughs> 
Assembly anticipated that there could be facts of this nature that would uh, necessitate or be an appropriate situation for not having statutory caps in, in place. So when there is a civil case and against an adjudicated rapist, that's the one scenario in which the Supreme Court found, excuse me, the General Assembly found under 2315.21D6 should be a situation in which there is no statutory cap whatsoever for the punitive damages. And so the plaintiff in this case has the benefit of specifically a remedy prescribed by the General Assembly. And so much of the effort placed in the papers by the appellant and in the amicus is that there's been no remedy afforded to this particular plaintiff. The record is just the exact opposite. She has had her day in court, she has had a jury deliberate, and that jury in fact gave her the remedy that the General Assembly prescribed. Now there's another factor that also the court should consider in determining whether or not this is the appropriate case. And again, I said facts matter. And that was true particularly in this case. And we've heard, the, of course, the presentation by the appellant, but there was another side of the case that was presented before the trial court. And what was the case as it related, and we have to make a division between what was presented to the jury and what was uh, submitted to the judge, because it was for the trial court in the first instance to decide whether or not the plaintiff had presented a case that would warrant a conclusion that the statute was unconstitutional as applied. And I would submit that when you look at the record, it's a very modest attempt before the trial court judge. Quite frankly, we should not criticize the trial court judge. We should not criticize, as they've done in their papers in the Court of Appeals, because they simply looked at what was put before them by the plaintiff. And so much of what you've seen in the papers is information that is outside the record. Well, this court is not considering this matter in the first instance as a court of original jurisdiction, but only as an appellate uh, jurisdiction. Are you saying so the papers being the newspapers? Uh, no, Your Honor. There are so many uh, different <laughs> studies referenced by the appellant and the various amicus uh, briefs submitted in support of the appellant's position, various studies, et cetera. So what is outside the record that you think we're considering? I'm, I'm not sure the court is considering it, but certainly the appellant has asked the court to consider it. All the various studies that are cited in their briefs, none of those materials are before the record. So whether we're looking at this as a facial or as an applied challenge, it was incumbent upon counsel in the first instance to present this material to the trial court, and they failed to do so. And so this court, setting in an appellate capacity, is not in a position to consider information for the the first time now, but that's exactly what they've asked this court to do. Well, Counselor, assuming this is uh, this is an as applied argument, do we factor in, as you brought up earlier, the the judgment, the hundred and thirteen hundred and fourteen, as a factor for whether this the statute is unconstitutional as applied? to this person based on the, the injuries, the damages, the, the, the lifelong um, um, uh, results that this will have. When we consider as applied to this person, do we, do we 
what's authority for saying we consider as applied to this person in light of the compensatory damages? I think the court has to consider the judgment that was awarded. Again, there's various components to a judgment, but what is the ultimate judgment that she prevailed upon? That judgment is perhaps one of the largest ever awarded. But the, but the reduction in punitives don't consider that award, do they? I'm sorry, please? But but the, the reduction in the punitive award does not consider. Consistent with the legislative intent of the General Assembly, there was no limitation placed on the punitive damages that were awarded. So um, this uh, that, that's one of the ironies of this case, um, that this their, the plaintiff is purporting to pers uh, proceed before this court on a class that was never, she never asked to have certified, for a class that was never certified, and a class for which she is not a member. Because there are so many other uh, injured tortfeasors that would fall in the category that he asked you to consider as part of an as-applied test. And she's not one of them because few are in a situation in which they have a $100 million verdict. But so, on the as-applied test, on the as-applied test, you began your discussion with facts matter, but you only talked about dollars. It looks to me as if in the Simpkins case, when you're getting to the issue of improvidently allowed, which is what you want this court to do, that the, the facts that Simpkins was talking about had to do with what happened to the individual seeking redress and compensation. You haven't talked about any comparison of Simpkins, which this court said two rapes equaled one, and, uh, and Brandt, where it went on for quite a long time. Where's the factual comparison here that we should say Simpkins wouldn't say that this case is one we should consider? Thank you, Your Honor. That um, comparison is found in the 8th District Court of Appeals decision, which outlines in some detail um, the comparison. So let's, let's start off with what was represented to the trial court. What was represented to the trial court by the plaintiff's counsel at that time is that this case uh, paralleled Simpkins, with the exception of three items that we've identified in the papers that are really not material. So at least from the plaintiffs, if you, again, are we faulting the trial court for not giving them the judgment they're asking for from this court? We shouldn't because they simply told the trial court this case paralleled Simpkins. But when we look to see what the 8th District Court of Appeals did after analyzing the record, the 8th District said certainly that the plaintiff has been harmed, but there was substantial issues as to whether or not the current health issues that she is experiencing was proximately caused by the defendant's conduct or really were the result of other stressors in her life. You mean we can't leave that to the jury? Uh, actually, whether or not a statute is unconstitutional is an issue that has to be decided by the court, not the jury. That is outside the jury's province. So um, when we go back to see whether or not we've, we're treating the trial court fairly here, there could have been a number of steps that could have been taken by the plaintiff before the trial court. They could have asked for a bench trial on this issue. They could have asked the trial court to have rendered factual findings and conclusions. There's all things that could have been presented to the court. What the trial court had is, the trial court was not obligated to follow what the jury was uh, doing in terms of factual determinations. That was for the trial court to determine in the first instance. And we know Ohio law is clear that the trial court is presumed to know and follow the law. The trial court is presumed to faithfully apply that law to the facts. And in this particular case, we must make the assumption 
that's compelled by the law, that the trial court considered this court's prior decision in Simpkins, this court's prior decision in Arbino, and concluded that the evidence the plaintiff had failed to establish by clearing convincing evidence that there was some type of unconstitutional result under these particular facts. But even on an as-applied basis, as opposed to the, the, the facial constitutionality of disturbing a jury's verdict in a common law situation, why are you making the distinction that we can't consider what the jury did in, in looking at the factual basis of the as-applied? Why, why do we need to make that distinction? Well, under the particular facts of this case, I don't know that you need to because the jury doesn't have uh, specific interrogatories answering the detailed questions this court might have about the particular facts. What we do know is that the 8th District Court of Appeals, when it reviewed the record, the same record that's available for your honor, before your honor, saw in fact there was a, a tremendous amount of evidence available suggesting that there were other acts voluntarily taken by the plaintiff that were in fact impacting her life today. Whether it was a decision to basically be homeless, uh, to be in an abusive relationship with a boyfriend, ultimately go down a path that resulted in drug addiction, all those were factors that the Court of Appeals said was showed the record was equivocal, equivocal. And the evidence has to be unequivocal in support of the plaintiff to support those, its claim. But weren't those already presented to the jury and the jury made a decision? The jury did not make a decision as to the constitutional law issues, Your Honor. No, I the just jury mean, did in, not, I apologize for speaking. It, excuse me, my, my point is that the, the jury made a decision that she was injured and to what extent. So why do we have to re-examine that issue if the jury made that decision? Because the court had to, in the first instance, make the determination whether the facts as, a, as presented here uh, supported an as-applied constitutional claim. That wasn't for the jury to consider. And in fact, there had not been an advisory jury uh, impaneled by the judge to solicit information. The plaintiff had never made that request. So why would we fault the trial court for making, it, making the determination that she did, which that the evidence did not support the claim being advanced. Now, there is a, another important consideration I need to focus on in terms of it, which is, um, I, and I've told you about the first two, but the third is equally important, that if there was ever a case supporting tort reform, this is the case. Because remember, in Arbino, the, the, the court emphasized there were a number of key factors supporting um, the, the rationale that the General Assembly had made in enacting tort reform. One is, the, is that we, one was that we were going to have consistency in judgments. That's one of the, the first one. The second one was that we wanted to make sure that we were not having subjective results. And the third was that we wanted to ensure that a result was not the product of improper influences. Now consider this case in comparison to Simpkins. And I agree, as was mentioned earlier, you, it's, it's a delicate task to try to draw uh, comparisons between rape cases. But when you look to see what the verdict was in Simpkins and what the verdict was in this case, the numbers are staggering. In terms of the differentials, there is a disparity between what a Cleveland jury did and what a jury did in Delaware. 
And those numbers are not, uh, take out the, the punitive damages, we're talking about $40 million versus $3 million. <coughs> now, if there was ever a case in which the court says we need to make sure that there is equal treatment among litigants in Ohio courts, which of course is a, a tenet of what this court has made a focus as part of its public announcements, as part of its courts. So counsel, court's you don't think that there's an argument to be made that the distinction between Simpkins and Brandt, um, what happened to both victims, uh, the consequences uh, are distinguishable one from the other. Um, as a practical matter, they are not, Your Honor. Uh, and, and again, we can talk about Simpkins being two, two instances of rape. We can talk about, in this particular case, multiple instances of rape. But then are we going to temper by the, by that by the fact that in this case, uh, the, uh, the victim was unconscious or asleep for most of the Drugged. incidents? So, uh, you know, how do you try to balance that? What, what I well, would that's the job that, of the jury to balance that. And they did as to the, the compensatory damages that they awarded. But when you're going to compare those two cases, remember in, in any tort case, the issue is a remedy for damage is sustained. And in each of those cases, the victims had in fact successfully recovered in material respects and were living appropriate lives moving forward. That's what was key both before the 8th District, that was key before this court in the Simpkins case, because a um, victim is not entitled to um, a remedy for a damage that does not exist. And in this particular case, uh, the plaintiff, in fact, has uh, successfully moved beyond the trauma that she sustained. Now, they've said that she's going to have continued counseling, but please, I invite you to look at the testifying expert's report. He's not saying that one, her continued issues are associated with this particular event. He doesn't even know to what extent she's going to continue to receive these treatments in the future. So what, what, it is it, a record an, that is... What's an appropriate life going forward? Well, uh, as anyone that would be uh, suffer through any type of um, uh, tort scenario, Your Honor, one of the issues you're going to find out is whether or not you can re-enter society in a, a productive way. Are you working? Do you have a family? Do you have children? When we consider those type of factors, those all favorably suggest that the plaintiff has in fact recovered. And again, when we talk about what is the consequence to her moving forward, what the court has, uh, excuse me, what the, what the record reflects is that the evidence that I think they needed, in fact the law said they needed to put before the trial court to convince otherwise, was in fact not found uh, in the record anywhere else. Um, so it's a question of resiliency? Well, that's always part of life, Your Honor, resiliency, and that impacts each person differently. But in this particular case, the plaintiff should be applauded for the success she has, she has made moving forward, as was the case with the plaintiff in the Simpkins case. Both of them have moved forward in a very productive and successful fashion. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Peck, you have <coughs> two and a half minutes saved. Thank you, Your Honor. I think in many ways my friend has made the case for why this needs to be struck as applied. Um, he talks about uh, how there's a need for a bench trial to 
re-examine the same facts that were examined by the jury. The jury's verdict is the indication of how catastrophic this was. Not only did they um, award um, a large compensatory damages, but punitive damages as well. That is a clear indication of how the damage was so se severe and catastrophic that it ought to be um, considered uh, the exception. Now, one of the things that we do in, as applied challenges, whether we're looking at equal protection, which uh, basically says are similar uh, situated people being treated alike, or um, due process where we're looking at the reasonableness and arbitrariness of the distinctions that are being made, um, is that we look at the fact that uh, these are critically hard examples of people who have been injured catastrophically, life-altering ways that uh, are absolutely comparable, if not worse, than those that the legislature accepted. So by carving out an exception, the legislature has opened the door to others who are at least as uh, substantial. As you just said, the legislature created exceptions. Should <coughs> we allow the legislature to create these exceptions? Uh, under equal protection and, and, and due process, um, we have a case to be made and the courts have the authority to say that these people are similarly situated and have to be treated alike because the Constitution commands and the legislature must obey the Constitution. And I would suggest to you that when we examine the facts, that also raises the right to jury trial because the 8th District's examination of the facts really is a look at something that we assign to jurors. Um, and I commend to this court Anderson versus Liberty uh, Lobby, a uh, Supreme Court case from 1986 that says credibility determinations, the weighing of evidence, the drawing of legitimate inferences from the facts are jury functions, not those of a judge. And so uh, in conclusion, what I'd like to say is that this is an instance where the purposes that my friend described, uh, the concerns about subjectivity, about improper influences, are criticisms of the jury but our framers assign the task to our jury. And if you aren't going to strike it down in its entirety, as applied to this case, the, the uh, uh, injury is so great and her Herculean efforts to try to lead a semi-normal life should not deter this court from finding that her injuries are sufficiently catastrophic that it should fit within an exception that uh, the statute fails to recognize but the Constitution does. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. We'll take the matter under advisement, and you'll be notified of our decision. Marshall, we call a recess. All rise.